Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. We're glad to have you. <laughs> I, I have to apologize. <laughs> Dan is gesturing like a madman on his camera while I'm trying to, to start the podcast. And I'm not gonna. We're not gonna. We're not gonna start over again. We're just. Gonna, we're just gonna keep going. Welcome back to Rethinking Politics. Thank you. We're glad to have all but one of you here with me today, and. <laughs> And it should be good. Last week we talked about uh, greedflation, the 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 rising theory that inflation is not a result of a growing supply of money, but is rather a result of uh, greed. And we talked a little bit about that theory, and and dissected an article discussing it. And this week, as promised, we're going to be presenting the Austrian economic theory in its partial glory because there's just so much there we're going to cover as much as we can and then work to apply that to what's going on in the world today and when i say we i want to be clear that i'm mostly talking <laughs> about me because dan has not stopped just goofing off on camera <laughs> this is the advantage of us not recording camera right we can I can actually just do like the he, YMCA. He can look like, as stupid as he wants. And the only result is me being unable to say anything intelligent. So, <laughs> which, which is to say it's a normal podcast. So it's, so it's no problem. <laughs> At least now I'm not I sure why you're complaining. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's funny. You, you mentioned the greedflation episode. I sense have heard a poll. I was surprised to find that, uh, how many people are willing to accept that explanation. I mean, not that not that it should be a shock that corporations are raising their prices in part because they want to make more money, right? That that's that's a thing. And so I guess it's not that surprising that people believe it. But the concept of greedflation is meant to really be a fundamental shift in the way we view economics. They've taken something that seems like an obvious explanation as part of it, but the but by giving that priority, they're really changing the way we think of economics. Mm -hmm. But as you said, today we're going to be addressing how we think of economics, not not worry about the other disciplines, not try and do some comparative thing, not try and dance some dance. It's 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 really hard with a limited amount of time to, and to do justice down. to multiple ideas. <laughs> and sitting down. Just I'm not I'm not a good dancer to begin with, but seated <laughs> even harder. I, I see. <laughs> well those of you out there, feel free to dance to this podcast. Who needs music? So, so here's what we're going to do. So we're going to be basing our, our, our explanation of Austrian economics loosely or not loosely, depending on how it goes, on a book written by Murray N. Rothbard many, many years ago. And the book is called Man, Economy, and State. And for those of you who are familiar with this book, it is a whopper. So, something like a thousand pages long. Um, it's very dry and it's it's very difficult to read <coughs> while also being incredibly easy to read at the same time. So uh, depending on who you talk to, I, <laughs> I thoroughly enjoy it. Um, but but what this book attempts to do is it attempts to look at the Austrian economic theory, not in a philosophical way, like someone like, uh, you know, 
Mises did in the past. You know, he's one of the one of the guys who came up with these fundamental ideas, and so he's feeling them out and seeing, okay, well, what about this and what about this, and trying to defend these main ideas. Rothbard's coming in later and saying, okay, we have all these ideas that together form this economic theory. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put them all in one place and in an almost Euclidean fashion, start from point A and build up the theory. The Euclid comparison is, I think, really useful. If you're not familiar with Euclid, Euclid did uh, the he was the geometry guy, the Greek geometry guy that uh, famously people like Abraham Lincoln would carry his works around and study them to learn argument, to mm-hmm. learn logic. Um, because Euclid would, we would, <laughs> if you think of geometry and you're thinking numbers, he, there are no numbers in Euclid. <laughs> it's all propositions. It's, it's logical propositions that build on one another to explain geometrical truths that are true regardless of the numbers, right? It's not a, this isn't a demonstration of a, of the numbers. Um, it's a, it's the theories behind them. And that was based in logic. If you want to learn logic, I would say to, this is my, my assertion is that Rothbard is the greatest teacher of logic. This book particularly is going to be the greatest, the most useful treatise on logic that you're going to run into because it attempts to do exactly what Euclid was doing. It does it on a much wider scale. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a verbal logic in an, in an attempt to, as Brad said, establish certain axioms, things that are self-evidently true. And then build from there in a deductive process, which to the degree that it's effective is true because it's deductive, right? Deductive being, uh, if some, if you learn something by deduction, if you learned anything from a Sherlock's home, Sherlock's, Sherlock's home <laughs> from a Sherlock Holmes movie. It's that he doesn't know what the word deduction means. <laughs> because deduction, if deduction when done properly is 100%. Whereas he's playing probabilities almost all the time, right? He's like, and I'm, running I'm, around I'm a lot from and, and fighting people. <laughs> That's the movies, yes. Which, <laughs> There's a bizarre amount of action uh, that apparently is all fueled by deduction. <laughs> But anyway, we digress. We as digest. Usual. We, di- we so, do that as well. Unintentionally. So Austrian economics starts with one single point, and it's that it's a study of human action. And and what that means is human action is purposeful action that someone uses to achieve an end. So, so Dan, what are some examples of human action? Human action, uh, us making a podcast, human action. No, I said purposeful, something <laughs> to achieve an end. <laughs> this is, you, you're suggesting what we're doing is an accident. <laughs> it's unintentional. For that what, we're mere animals what I'm behaving is with that, is that Rothbard makes it very clear in this book that basically every action that you or I take is driven by a desire. That there's something that we want mm-hmm. to have happen at the end of that. And we believe that doing something will result in that desire. And I'm saying that is not our podcast. That it's almost a universal thing 
you know, that basically anything you or I do <laughs> is purposeful action, except for one. Except for one. Yeah. So you in the another way to express this is is people use means to achieve ends. An end is the goal, means is the action or thing that you do to achieve that goal. Um, you're hungry, you get some food. You're tired, you sleep. You, uh, you want to feel less stressed, you turn on the TV or you, you know, you call your friend or you do whatever you do. You know, you crack, you crack open the bottle, whatever, whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. That, that every action is fueled and, and often unconsciously, right? Where you don't have to deliberately be like, what do I want and how do I get it? Mm -hmm. Often it's so automatic what we do. No, and, and a great example of that would be you're lying in bed and you're supposed to get up. You've got things you need to do that you know that you should be doing and you don't want to do them. And so you stay in bed. And so you might argue, no, I, I wasn't acting to achieve an end. In fact, I was doing the opposite. I was specifically choosing not to act and to not choose my and to not achieve my ends. But in reality, what's happening there is that you looked at all of the things you needed to do that day and or at least the first thing you were going to do that day. And you said, I would rather stay in bed for five more minutes or 10 more minutes or all day than do those things. And so your new end was, in fact, staying in bed. Or maybe it wasn't even staying in bed. Maybe your new end was specifically not doing those things. And so you right. stayed in bed was the means. But for me, it's usually the staying in bed is the, is the end, not the means. But it depends. You know, it, it depends. Everyone is different. And so, so that's things. There's a few key elements here to human action. The first one is, is that only individuals can act because only individuals can have our well only individuals are human there is no such thing as a creature that's made up of 10 people and so 10 people can act together to each achieve their own ends that happen to align with each other but they're still acting individually to achieve their own end you know what I mean? So if I'm marching in a parade with a whole bunch of people to protest gay rights, we are not group acting. We're all individually there for our own reasons. And they're usually quite varied. You know, if you if you go to a gay rights, you know, uh, protest or parade, everyone there is not going to be like, oh, yes, the end I'm trying to achieve is gay rights as an elusive concept they're going to have much more specific reasons for why they're there and in this case the means may be the same showing up at this event but it doesn't mean that they're individuals who are individually acting so that's they're the first not thing. individuals who are individually acting that, yeah. yeah they're yeah. individuals who are individually acting together yeah you could because you could say why did congress pass this bill and to answer that question and to really understand it, you'd actually have to look at them as individuals. Mm -hmm. You'd have to say, why did so-and-so pass this bill? In fact, that's how most bills are passed is by people looking at the individual motivations of the people they need to that's get right. the vote That's passed. right. You want to move politics, you got to get into that level mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, and start figuring out why people are doing what they do and, try and start working with them from there. So, so the next thing you need to have is a desire for something to be different. 
You know what I mean? That things mm-hmm. are – you've got an environment that you're in, and the environment's different for everyone. And if you are perfectly happy with everything that's taking place in that moment, then you won't act. Of course, at that point, you're choosing inaction in order to continue to get the end that you want, which is the current state of things. But assuming your choice isn't inaction, then what you have to desire is something different from how things currently are. You know, whether that's you want to be standing instead of sitting or whether you want, you know, you want to eat instead of not eat, et cetera, et cetera. And those desires can become much more complicated. You know, it could be that you want... You know, a Toyota RAV4 with the XSE trim and the extra moonroof package. You know, did you just start speaking in another language? What what is it? Toyota RAV4 XSE with the moonroof package. (laughs) I'm assuming I just learned something something new about Brad. I'm assuming that's not something you desire, Dan. I don't even know. I mean, I can imagine what that might be a moonroof. Is this like solar power, but by the moon? So, no, so, so I've actually, Carry I've on. actually been recently uh, explained this. Is a uh, sunroof is when it's over the front part of the car, you know, the drivers, and the uh-huh. moonroof is when it's farther back. I don't know why really? a moonroof is would be desirable over a sunroof, um, but they're pretty popular now. I see many, many models of cars that have moonroofs instead of sunroofs. That's what I was told about the difference between a moonroof and a sunroof. I'm not a roof person, sun or moon. And so, so I wouldn't know. We've checked that box now and we, we're probably not going to talk cars again. So if that's what you're here for, uh, join us next time. Wait, we're talking about for the economics. So I, I mean, think I what, guess if <laughs> I think what Dan's trying to say here is move on, Brad, move on, <laughs> even though he was the one who made me stop and clarify. <laughs> so so you have the desire and then the next thing or the ends and the next thing you have is the means. And the first thing about means is that you have to have an expectation that an action you will take will result in the thing that you want. Otherwise, you're not going to do it. And that's the means. And first of all, the expectation may not always be correct. You may think that an action will result in what you want, but that's not always the case. A great example of that is jokes. You know what I mean? I tell a joke with the desired result being that people give me a weird look and then kind of there's an awkward silence. But instead, sometimes people laugh and it ruins the whole thing. (laughs) And so... So my expectation doesn't always line up with reality, but sometimes I get the awkward silence. <laughs> that must be really jarring for you when they actually laugh. It's terrible. Especially given how infrequent it is. <laughs> <laughs> like, are you, are you sick? What happened? <laughs> Some nervous tick? So, so the next part of, of this is that it takes time to do things. And so one of the one of the means that you need in order to accomplish whatever your desired end is is time. And so time is one of the scarce resources that you allocate in order to achieve your end. And then the next part of this is that all of the resources are scarce. And so whatever it is you want to achieve, there's no unending resource that you can use. 
And and one of the biggest limiting factors you'd think is the physical resources. You'd think when it comes to me getting that Toyota, the biggest limiting factor is the fact that I don't have $40,000. It's actually not true. The biggest limiting factor to me getting that Toyota is time. If time didn't exist, then I could get everything that I wanted. You know what I mean? Because right now, mm-hmm, if mm-hmm. I wanted to, I could save up for years and years and get that car, right? Right. If you get rid of the years and years and everything takes place simultaneously, then I could instantly acquire every single thing that I was willing to work towards, which is kind of a, a trippy thought, but that it's time that really limits what we're able to do. And so time actually becomes the most scarce factor in regards to achieving our ends. And it's something we experience every day because when I wake up, because of time, I can only do one thing at a time. You know what I mean? I can either lay in bed or get up and do the dishes. I cannot do them simultaneously. I can either do the dishes or go eat a snack. I cannot do them both at the same time. And obviously there's multitasking, but multitasking is actually a new means. You know what I mean? Eating a cheeseburger with one hand while trying to wash dishes with the other hand, which anyone can tell you won't be as effective as just eating the cheeseburger. You need you need to really savor it in order to get the same ends from it. <laughs> You thought I was going to go the other way and say it's not as effective as using two hands to wash the dishes, didn't you? No, 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 no. The cheeseburger is the important part here. I'm stuck in the visual, imagining someone trying to wash dishes with one hand. This just seems difficult. Unless you've got some serious water pressure going on. I'm thinking, yeah, maybe one of those commercial dishwashing stations in a a big restaurant kitchen. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Must have for you one-handed cheeseburger eaters out there. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully it's a real small one. Okay, so, so, so to, to, to cap human action, it's purposeful action made by individuals to satisfy their ends or desires with an expectation that a means will achieve that end using scarce means, including time, to prioritize the ends they want the most in order to achieve a better situation for themselves. Anything you want to add to that, Dan? Just a few thoughts. Uh, One of of which is that uh, all of this depends on the fact that you can act in the world and get results from it. There's Mm -hmm. a, there's a, the fact that the, the physical world and our engagement in it is, is, is what's the word maybe consistent enough uh it's governed by law enough that you actually can through trial and error learn how to accomplish things that will get you closer to what you want you can imagine a universe in which what you do has a random effect <laughs> and you'd give a, up a acting eventually without causality yes without causality precisely where where to Move the muscles in my left arm might move the window open mm-hmm. instead of moving my left arm or something like that. You know, where mm, we're something just completely totally arbitrary. irrational. Yes, yes. Um, and at which point action would become a meaningless thing. But but the fact that we can affect the world. Um, I look at a. I've got a four month old baby right now, and he's 
frantically trying to figure out what on earth does what. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? He's got desires. He has very little idea of how to satisfy them other than the instinctual like crying when I'm miserable kind of thing. <laughs> but but then he grows in capacity and it's a it's interesting the the nature of the world we live in. And yeah, but you can talk even, a lot about that. Even on that small scale you can see it where Mm-hmm. Where the crying is not irrational. There's a clear yes. goal in mind from the crying. Yes, I'm uncomfortable in some way. Uh, even I'm when hungry, probably have I'm very tired, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm gassy, or any yes. anything a baby might feel, I guess, too. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, guys. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm just in a, in a weird mood today. <laughs> And with that, (laughs) (laughs) so then you've got, uh, and you could, you could draw a lot of interesting philosophical things. That's one of them, the nature of law in our existence and how we depend on that and being able to interact with things in that way. Um, and uh, other ones you talked about time, you, it suggests some things about the philosophy of existentialism, right? This, this confrontation with the fact that I'm going to die is the confrontation with time, Mm -hmm. the, with the limited, uh, the limitation of scarce resources, specifically our time, which is really our life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things are interesting and you can build in a variety of ways off of these ideas into all kinds of philosophical things. Uh, as you mentioned, Mises, uh, focuses a lot on those. Rothbard's going to be more narrowly focused on, uh, on what we generally think of as economics. And that's what we're going to build up now, though you could, as I said, go all kinds of directions from here, but and it's interesting stuff. So the next concept we want to talk about in regards to, to human action is value scales. And value scales are a concept that I am in love with. Something that, that I've found incredibly useful, not just when looking at economics, but when looking broadly at human action in general. Value scales are a great way to apply the principles of human action. And that's exactly what value scales do is take everything you learned about human action, that it's a means to achieve an ends and you'll eventually end up with value scales. Um, and so how you get to that is you have ends that you want to achieve. Most people have an almost infinite number of ends that they want to achieve. There are infinite ends that can be aimed for. You know what I mean? I could, mm-hmm. I could desire to slowly, I don't know. I, I thought of several things and, and it got surprisingly dark, like me bashing my head <laughs> through a wall for no reason. And I don't know why my mind went there, but that's an let, example let take- of, of an absolutely bizarre and irrational desire that I might have. <laughs> <laughs> let me let me step in while Brad slips into madness for a moment. <laughs> there are a lot of really good ice cream flavors. And it among the flavors I've tried, I've probably had 30 or 40 good ice cream flavors across the course of my life. You know, some of them are variations on the same mm-hmm. flavor with subtle differences. But they're still different, yeah. But they're still different, right? Um if if you wanted to taste the best ice cream, what are the limits of that, that single thing alone, right? <laughs> like, like what kinds of ice cream could you end up settling on as your, as your mm-hmm. end, as the, mm-hmm. as the thing that does that? Um, you could, uh, in terms of like desires for what makes someone happy in life, you know, having, having good friends, having 
good relationships, having and and you could get into the specifics of of the the goals that you have there, the ends that you have there. Um, there's really and and obviously you don't. And I'm just talking good things. You can aim for anything, right? <laughs> aim is As aim I've is something expressed. that <laughs> Brad has already initially shown us in shocking manner. <laughs> you can aim for all kinds of things, right? So the aims are are ultimately uh, infinite. Though you could certainly argue that there are a finite number of good ones, or at least a finite number of good directions that you could go for aims. But yeah, yeah, to- you could argue ends. there's a finite Infinite. number of good generalities, but in specific ends, they definitely have to yes. be infinite. Because even when you start talking about ice cream, there are yes, an yes. infinite number of ways that you can that you can create variety just within the world of ice cream. Yes, let alone let alone something as complicated as relationships. Or- mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, and then there are an infinite number of means we can use to achieve those ends. So, so as you were saying, Dan, you know, your goal is to have the most delicious ice cream. There are many different ways you can go about trying to achieve that goal. And based off of the knowledge that you have, the experience that you have, the environment that you're in the way you go about to achieve that's going to be different. Yes, and it's hard not to conflate means and ends because sometimes you're aiming for the means specifically, mm-hmm. uh, which is why it can be it can be somewhat interchangeable. Um, a good end that often people live for is a, they want a good life, broadly uh-huh. speaking. And, and what does that look like and, and how is that achieved? Is a uh, One of the means to that is a very, very interesting question. Maybe you'd come up with some things that are in common, but but obviously there's an infinite configuration there. No, which is why which is why in practical terms when we talk about ends we're usually focused on the specifics. You know, generally I want to have a good life. Yeah. But Aristotle would say generally people want to be happy. Yeah, they want to be happy and I want to be happy too. But specifically when I wake up and the impetus for me getting out of bed is not me for a specific thinking, action. I want to be happy today and that's why I'm getting out of bed. I'm thinking <laughs> I need to record a podcast today, so I'm going to get out of bed. You know, I'd like to sleep another hour, but I'd rather record a podcast. And this is where we get into an interesting idea. Because there are an infinite number of ends and means, but there's a finite amount of time, we have to make choices, right? Because we can't do all of those things. And so what we do is consciously or unconsciously, we weigh all of the options that we have against each other and determine what's at the top of the list. And it's not like we're visualizing a list every time. But when I choose to get out of bed, I'm putting getting out of bed above anything else I could have done in that specific situation. So mm-hmm. I couldn't, it wasn't a choice between getting out of bed or riding a bike because I can't ride a bike in bed. It wasn't choosing to get out of bed or going fishing because I can't fish while in bed. I don't have that skill set. Um, 
<laughs> so it's limited by your situation. You know what I mean? When I when yeah. I'm getting out of bed, I'm not choosing against <laughs> everything that's happening in the world in that moment. No, I'm just choosing about what else I could have done. I could have stayed in bed. I could have rolled out of bed. I could have started screaming at the top of my lungs while pounding my fists into my pillow. You know what I mean? There are so many things I could have done besides get out of bed within that limited realm. <laughs> yes, yes. And you mentioned that consciously or unconsciously, we're weighing these things. And we're not necessarily suggesting that you're weighing, that somehow your mind is able to take into account all of the possibilities no. in that given moment. It's just the, the possibilities before you, right? The possibilities that the you possibilities are aware you think of. of. Yeah, that you know, you're, there's you're a limited reason, to some degree by your knowledge there. There's a reason creative people are valued for their creativity because they're able to think of goals that we didn't think of and that expands <laughs> our opportunities. Yeah, you know ends I mean? and means that are beyond what. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because absolutely, because if I can't think of an incredibly clever way to get out of bed, I won't use that. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I could I could be doing something really awesome instead of just getting out of bed like I normally do and I just haven't thought of it yet. <laughs> Hopefully I will soon. Hopefully you will – please inform me. It's soon I'm going to be somersaulting out of bed every morning. And I'd be like, man, I could have been doing this my whole life. <laughs> it's interesting. I hear people discuss things like uh, – like, uh, often people talk about market decisions within a context of perfect rationality and perfect knowledge. And I just wonder what world they're talking about because mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, it's not this world. That's for sure. <laughs> no, and that's, and that's a great point to clarify that, yeah, in this Austrian economic way of viewing things, we're not saying that you're viewing all the possible ends. You don't have that perfect knowledge. You don't have perfect rationality. You know, you may choose irrational things. And you may not be able to think of the best possible outcomes, but given what you are thinking of or unconsciously thinking of, because often I don't decide to get out of bed. I just do it because of, you know, habit and routine. And, and I understand mm -hmm. that I do want to get out of bed more than stay in bed. And so I don't even have to make that conscious decision, even though I'm making that decision every day. Right. It doesn't change the fact that it's a decision because I could stop if I wanted to. I'm not stuck in this rut where it's impossible for me to not get out of bed when I choose to. You know what I mean? I think the, the by rational here, what we mean is uh, attempting causality, right? It's, it's mm -hmm. trying to go from – it's trying to use a means to achieve an end. It's, it's, mm -hmm. This value scale is, is, uh, is the way by which you go from the possible to a specific action. Right. Mm -hmm. You've, you've, you've considered consciously or unconsciously, and you have to do something, even if it's continue doing what you're, what you're doing. And so you prioritize and that priority ends up with something at the top that you do. Mm -hmm. And often <laughs> I say something at the top and I immediately think of when my wife can't decide between two food places. <laughs> 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 Everyone's been asked, what do you want to eat? And you're like, ah, this or this or this, and it's all fine. <laughs> you don't really have a strong preference. And that's, that's, that doesn't interfere with, uh, with the fact that you do want to eat. And, well, that the and means, that's, there's and that's various a great example because, because you'll quickly realize that value scales are very complicated and they're not ironclad. Because I can mm -hmm. tell you right now, having been involved in many of those conversations, 
that there are many things you can do to shift someone's value scales. And that's often why people are vague about what they want is because they, their decision is going to be based off of what you want. So let's say we've got a couple, yes, you know, it's yes. me and my wife. My wife has several places that she wants. And if it were just her going to get food, she would not be paralyzed by indecision. She would just go to Chick-fil-A. But because we're going to get food together, her value scales have shifted from Chick-fil-A at the top to Chick-fil-A might be at the top or it might be something else because she wants to make me happy at the same time. And so if I say I want Chipotle, then she'll be like, great, Chick-fil-A's back at the top. You get Chipotle. I'll get Chick-fil-A. But if I say five guys, then now five guys is at the top because she'd rather go get five guys with me then get Chick-fil-A by herself. And so it becomes this complicated mental algorithm that takes place. And we have a little conversation to then resort the algorithm based off of what the two of us want. And of course, in her case, it's not always Chick-fil-A, but it's easier for this example to have it just be Chick-fil-A. But anyways, and so what (laughs) we have is, is a value scale that is constantly shifting and is not always ironclad, but is but is fluid based off of, I mean, even our passing cravings. You know what I mean? I'm not stable in what I want, but at any given moment, I do want something, which is the only reason I act. If we didn't have value scales, as in something that we valued above other things, we would never act. Right. I'm glad you mentioned the things about affecting people's value scales. These things are far from set in stone. Um, they're influenced by little details, like how difficult the means is. Mm-hmm. If I can, you 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 take into account a certain action in connection to its means as one thing. So it's not you're not just saying, "Do I want to eat this food more than this food?" It's, "Do I want to go through the trouble of acquiring it?" Yes. Too. Do I want to so travel like 25 minutes and wait in line yes. this long to get the food? Do I have to leave my car? How much is it going to yes. cost? You know, in terms of dollars, on top of all these other means. Right. All of this is filtered through this to give you a kind of ordering where you go, "I'd rather do this than this." Mm-hmm. And sometimes, and sometimes you can't really figure out. You're like, ah, both of those have their issues, and and someone can persuade you. Uh, and, and and when you're saying both of those have their issues, what you're suggesting is that actually given these two choices in action right now or or not choosing is actually the preferable thing mm-hmm, you're mm-hmm. you you'd rather not choose than uh not do one of those things and so actually the highest thing on your on the scale mm-hmm. if you had to describe it would be be remaining as you are no, until and, you and have in further social, information and in social situations that's often a desirable end because you don't want to be responsible for what the group is doing <laughs> and so right, inaction right. is an end in and of itself Yes, and it's not really – depending on how you define inaction, you could say that there really is ultimately no inaction, right? There's yeah, no it is a, it's just a unchosen thing, yeah. We could call it subtle action. Inaction yeah. is really subtle action. Or continued action or something, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and it makes sense socially as for the reasons you were saying with your wife. I can, I can, I can relate. And it's and it's something that I see in all social interactions is there's this this counterplay and that's and that's what part of the the feelers are when you have that conversation is to try and understand where people are at so that you can properly calibrate things, but usually people don't think of it that way. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but in its core, a value scale could be easy, easily illustrated by having a hierarchy of things that you want. You know, like if you we were talking can candy bars, you know, you could have Snickers at the top, and then Butterfinger, and then, um, you know, Reese's Fast Break, and then et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And Did you say Milky Way? Did you just ignore the best candy bar, or was that in there? Hold on, hold on. Pause the Everybody episode. Everybody, stop. Keep listening, but hold on. Milky Way is your favorite candy bar? It's got to be top three, for sure. Well, what are the two you that are obviously list? above it? <laughs> I mean, I, like, I get it. You just told me it's it. in third place. Like, obviously, <laughs> Snickers is above it, because Snickers is a Snickers Milky is Way, not above but it. with an amazing crunch to it with, that, with those peanuts. Snickers is what happens when you run out of the good stuff and you had to fill in other things in the oh, Milky man. Way. Why why couldn't you be there through my childhood <laughs> for trick or treating so I could I could I would have off traded all, all the Snickers for, for the Milky Ways Snickers, yeah. yeah. Uh, what about Three Musketeers? Man, is up there for sure. Three Musketeers is good. Three Musketeers. I love the is good. the a hundred grand Carmelo. These are these are wow. You are where things you are, are out there with your with your candy choices. That's wild. I, now, Reese's is up there high too. Now let me be clear. Though. Let me be clear. I didn't say Reese's. I said Reese's uh, Fast Break. It's a different bar. It's a different candy. That's true. That is a different. It's candy. way better than Reese's. Reese's is fine, but the Reese's Fast Break is basically like a Snickers bar, but peanut butter flavored. <laughs> oh, so good. Um. Anyways, so so the other thing that's great about value scales is once you start talking in value scales, you can start judging other people's value scales. So, and that's the long-term goal of all of this of is all to of judge this people. Is to judge people. <laughs> is to say no, Milky Way should not be up there. It's not even that I don't like Milky Way. I just there are better candies. I like all candy. Well, there's a couple really nasty ones, but I like almost all candy. Anyways, back to the value scales. You know, so you've got your list of candy bars. And there's there's a few important things. Number one, this is obviously your list as demonstrated by the difference between me and Dan. This is your individual hierarchy of things that you desire in the realm of candy. So it's specific to an environment. It's even more specific because you notice I didn't list candy bars on there that you've never heard of that you can't get access to. Nestle Toll House cookie, cookie dough candy bars were a limited time candy a couple decades ago, maybe 15 years ago, that are no longer available, that are on my list always, but they're <laughs> inaccessible, and so I never get them. You know what I mean? There's some German candy bars. Holy cow. No, see, exactly. There's, yeah, there's yeah, so many yeah. things that are on the list, and so really when I make a candy bar list, I've got a dream list, but then there's a list of when I go to the store – what's actually available. And so when I go to the store, I start looking down my list. Okay, these candies never existed. These candies no longer exist. And then these candies exist but aren't here. And then finally, top of my list, these candies are here. That's the one that I get, you know. And your mood at that moment, right? Oh, Maybe yes. at that moment yes. you're not feeling some particular option. Sorry, I was already factoring that in with my fluid value scale. You're, yes, yes, yes. in okay. that moment, there are other candies I'm craving that aren't there or are no longer made. Or have never existed, but I wish they did. Yes, you know? or are there and you're just not feeling in the moment, right? You're, you're, yes, You exactly. just had one recently or uh -huh. something. 
which rarely stops me. Right. So even this, even the, so this theoretical, what are my top five, even the practical top five that are going to be there at the store, you might not choose number one Mm -hmm. because the actual value scale, the one that matters is not some abstraction that you've planned out ahead of time. It's not some list you keep in a drawer. No, your actual value scale, the important one that fuels your actual decisions is only ever solid in that moment as you make the choice. When you choose it, yes. It's ephemeral, because, and it has to be ephemeral in that way because it, it takes into account the things at the time. And it takes into account one candy bar, right? The, the, this is the term here is uh, marginal utility. Yeah, which we haven't and, uh, talked about yet. Which, which we has- haven't talked about, and it's painful. <laughs> I, I hate the term. But-, but, but it's super important because- The concept is. Because yes. the question might be, well, how long does this list need to be? This list needs to be for the candy bars, however many candy bars you choose to buy. So if you buy one candy bar, then in that moment, your value scale is is really a two-tiered value scale, which is this candy bar above all other candy bars. End of list. But if you're getting two candy bars, now that list by definition has to grow. Okay, do I want a second of that same candy bar or something else? And on that margin is where the ephemeral becomes concrete. And that's what Dan means by marginal utility. And so as you go down the list, your list becomes concrete as your cart fills up with candy bars, which we've all been there. Yeah, mar- by marginal here, we mean essentially – by marginal utility, we mean the value of the next one, mm-hmm. right? the, mm-hmm. the how you're weighting the next one item. And as, as you said, buying one is one thing. Now, you'd think that you, you would just buy two of the top thing, no? Of course not. Yeah, if that's what the kind thing of, you value the most. Yeah, yeah, right. If, if what we were saying is this is the greatest candy bar to me, then clearly I should just get more of that. But no, having one changes things. Having one may make it so that I actually want something else that complements it, right? Or I want some kind of new mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so even within this process, by purchasing two, my list is going to shift for that second tier, as Brad was suggesting, the, for the second choice. It might be something else. And And the great thing about this is that it's not something that as economists you have to have figured out. It's not something that even as individuals you have to have figured out. It's simply valuable as a concept to understand how people are operating. You know, it's to understand yeah. that in the moment people are making these choices based off of what they value. And and it's abstract and it's not in terms of of dollars and it's not in terms of objective value. It's subjective personal valuation um a great example of this you know there's always the uh the theoretical discussion of of bread versus platinum you know that in any given situation people would choose a bar of platinum which is an incredibly valuable metal versus a loaf of bread which costs you know two or three bucks or maybe seven bucks by the time you hear this podcast in a couple days um but still much cheaper than platinum. And so you choose the platinum. But generally, bread is more important than platinum because bread keeps us alive. You know what I mean? That if we had to choose between platinum or bread as a society, we might be better off with bread. Um, 
<laughs> Certainly. <laughs> Generally well, speaking, I'd say. No, and, and health experts could argue about the value of bread versus other <laughs> things. But bread is a concept. You know what I mean? Food versus precious metals. We always choose precious metals in the instance, but food is actually what we need. But it's because you're not actually measuring them as concepts. You're measuring them in the moment that specifically, would you rather have this loaf of bread? When you're next to a store where you can buy as much bread as you want, or this bar of platinum that you can take to the pawn shop, get several hundred dollars for, and then buy as much bread as you want, plus who knows what else. Obviously, people will choose the platinum. And depending on the situation, that may change. You're starving in the desert. You may choose the bread over the platinum. There's no way for you to sell it. You know what I mean? Et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. And so- and to- and to determine that value, as you're saying, requires the circumstance. Mm-hmm. You to sit and say what is the objective value of platinum is a fool's errand, because it's 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 actually beyond our ability to calculate. I mean, what would that what would that even mean? We'd have mm-hmm. to say in what to whom in what circumstances? What are their ends? Right? <laughs> what are the what is what would this uh, what would this serve? And and these are the kind of things that. Uh, as you said, it's ultimately the value scale highlights the subjectivity of value in all things. Mm-hmm. Not not subjectivity in that it's arbitrary, but subjectivity in that it is it is uh, you can't consider it without reference to the subject. Right? We're not using subjective as the opposite of truth. Right? No, not at <laughs> Sometimes all. Sometimes people go, "Objective is truth. Subjective is opinion." That's a silly, that's, that's not the distinction here. No, we're talking in, objective. In fact, it can be viewed from any perspective, fact, subjective the, from the, the, the opposite world. because we're arguing yes. that how people objectively view bread and platinum is in many ways inaccurate, but what is totally accurate is how they view them personally in the moment. That's yes. truth. Yes. Yes. I, yeah. Ironically enough, these are subjective truths. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And that that's, that's what. When you look at, uh, you see numbers like market value of an item, right? The reason we would pick platinum over bread in a normal day of our, of our normal American first world lives is because, uh, we know the market value is going to be much higher. And, and Dan, what is that's that actually value? a great segue to talking about exchange because that's the next logical progression from value scales is the reason to value platinum and that's exchanging things that you have for things that you want yeah turns out i don't craft with platinum i don't make jewelry i don't <laughs> even even that i don't i can't consume it i, I have I no little, use for I make platinum. little brick houses with the with the bars you know i just build a little house you just stack them. House, stack them like legos <laughs> like <laughs> Who knew you? Wow. Could, who knew you could sell? Them? I would like to see one. And uh, well, people keep one. offering them to me for bread. So what, <laughs> what do you do? And I'm like, well, I value platinum more than bread. Problem this is great solved. building material. <laughs> I love these toys. Ah, uh, sorry. So, anyways, exchange. So, so how exchange works is really quite simple. You have your value scale of candy bars. You also yeah, have Halloween example is great. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to the Halloween example. I have my value scale. Dan has his value scale. I have Milky Ways and Snickers. Dan has Milky Ways and Snickers. What's inevitably going to happen? 
I'm going to end up with more Snickers and Dan's going to end up with more Milky Ways. Is that going to happen because I'm stealing from Dan and Dan's stealing from me? Possibly, but hopefully (laughs) the logical thing is that I value Snickers much higher than Milky Way and Dan values Milky Way much higher than Snickers and we start trading. Does that mean we trade every single one of those two candies until we each have a full pile of the one? Absolutely not. No. Just no, because, I'm going to say, you know, I want at least one Snickers. Yeah, exactly. Just because I prefer Snickers, what matters is the marginal utility. When I have two Snickers and six Milky Ways, you better believe I'm going to trade. But what about when I have seven Snickers and one Milky Way? I'm going to be like, you know, I still enjoy that caramel and and nougat taste without the the peanuts. And so I'd like to keep this one kind of as an homage to the Mars company and their origins with the Mars bar and the history that goes behind this candy bar. (laughs) Yes, yes, I will keep one of these Milky Ways that used to be called Mars bars. And... And and there we, we would go. And so I would stop trading. But that's only if Dan was willing to trade that much with me. If he only had two Snickers and two Milky Ways, once he trades those two Snickers, he can't trade anymore. And so I may not even get there. Yeah. I, so I might get down to, to three Snickers and five Milky Ways and be like, you know, I really like Milky Ways. And Brad has more of those. But five Milky Ways, I think I'm set. I'm going to go find somebody who has some hundred grand and I'm going to see if they're going to take a Snickers. Trade those Snickers, yep. Yeah. Yeah, and, and then I can go find some other option. And and that's voluntary exchange. That's exactly what me and my siblings would do is we would organize all of our candy. We'd prioritize. And of course, in this case, our value scales would actually be conscious and listed. Like we'd be thinking, I want these <laughs> candies and I really want to get rid of these And we'd start trading with each other until we achieved equilibrium. And, and that's it. That's voluntary exchange in its, (laughs) in its most basic form. It's beautiful. It's something I really enjoy. Especially since you worked your rear off to get that candy, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you've got a pretty good haul, but then through exchange, you can at times go from having a lot of what you want to having a ton of what you want. You can Mm -hmm. go from, from like a a four out of ten, like this is way better than where I was at the beginning of the day with a one out of ten, and get it get to a ten out of ten through just trading, and that turns out to be much easier legwork, right? You don't have to go in any houses. You just sat there on the floor and you got to enjoy the anticipation of the candy. No, and and Dan, that's such a fantastic concept because because of how value scales work, the only reason you're going to engage in voluntary exchange is because you want you want what you're getting more than what you're giving up. In other words, you right. value purposeful it more high, highly. Yeah. So, purposeful action that you've chosen over other options. Exactly. So as a result of every single voluntary exchange, you're better off than you were before the exchange. Otherwise, you wouldn't have made the exchange. And that that right there is such a key concept in Austrian economics and is one of the, the the key components of being in favor of a free market is the idea that if you don't want the exchange and it's voluntary, then you won't make the exchange. But if you want the exchange and it's voluntary, then you're doing it because you believe you're going to be better off. It doesn't mean you're actually going to be better off. 
but it means that you're acting because you have that belief. And that goes back to the perfect rationality and the perfect knowledge. You know, often when I'm engaged in voluntary exchange, I do something because I think it's my best option, but then I realize it's not my best option. I trade for all these Snickers from Dan, and then I realize, oh, snap, I didn't realize this whole time that Joe over here hates Snickers, and he would have given me two Snickers for every one of my Milky Ways. And so I would have, I would have gotten much more if I had traded with Joe, which I didn't realize because I didn't have the knowledge. Dan wasn't lying to me. I just didn't realize there was someone else and I could have taken the time and gotten more of what I wanted. It mm-hmm. doesn't change. That doesn't change the fact that I'm better off trading with Dan than if I hadn't traded it at all. Right, right. Just because your life wasn't as you didn't optimize it to make it to really maximize how much you could get out of it. Mm-hmm. doesn't mean you're better off. So often when people are like, man, I got a, I got that was a cheated. really bad deal. I got cheated. What they mean is they were less better off than they, than they could have been. But they're still better off. Yeah. They're still they're still getting something. Still, They've still made the choice because the choice made them better off. And it mm-hmm. seemed at the time with the information they had to be the best, to be the, the right option. Yeah. And, and in that situation – And this is one of the key components is that if I'm a third party looking in that situation, the best thing I can do for Brad is give him knowledge. It's not to coerce any of these parties, but it's rather to give everyone in the situation as much knowledge as possible so they can make the best decisions. Because I can't give them more rationality. You know what I mean? (laughs) But I can give them knowledge. And if I start using coercion – then I stop them from making the voluntary exchanges that allow them to be better off. Yeah, you could even act on their behalf if they want you to, right? You could mm-hmm. you can help them negotiate. You can do stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. There's all sorts of things I can do to add value without interrupting that voluntary exchange. Yeah, because so- as soon as as soon as you interrupt the voluntary exchange, the assumption is that you are then uh, the assumption. You are, if it's going to happen voluntarily, you wouldn't need to coerce it. So if you're coercing it, it's because it wasn't going to happen voluntarily. And because you're stepping in and on someone's value scale, you're overriding what they see as the best decision for them, right? By by definition, through coercion, Mm -hmm. you are automatically making a worse decision for them. Yeah, you're reducing the value those parties would have had from the exchange. You're either reducing it or eliminating it, depending on what you're doing. Yes. Yes. It can, you can actually cause harm. Um, Mm. and, and this is, this is important because sometimes this is justified, right? Especially if the person themselves is not engaging in voluntary exchange, a thief, a robber, a murderer, uh, and so on, right? At that point, we go, yeah, this is going to harm them to throw them in jail. (laughs) But. But it's also going to prevent harm, right? It's mm-hmm. also going to mm-hmm. do these other things. But uh, when you do that in a free exchange, you're automatically decreasing for somebody, for one of the parties, uh, the perceived value that they're going to get out of it. Otherwise, they would do it willingly, right? Otherwise, you wouldn't have to coerce them. And so this brings us to to the real world. And the real world has a few more elements. One of the ones we want to go over real quick is the introduction of money. Money surprisingly doesn't change this game at all. 
it just makes it easier. Because what money does is it allows me to prioritize my candy choices every day without needing to have other people who have candy and me having candy to exchange in order to get my most valued candy. Instead, what I can do is instead of laboring on Halloween night, knocking on doors to get candy, I labor in, at a company in exchange for dollars that I can then use to purchase candy. And let me tell you, going from a kid with no money to a kid with money, oh man, the world was my burrito. I looked out and I was like, I can buy whatever candy I want. No trades. I just take the dollars and I can just start at the top of my list. And guess what? Walgreens has that candy and I'll just go over and buy it, you know, and then work my way down that value scales. And it was fantastic. And, and that's what money does. It's a game changer in terms of our ability to, to trade. And and this also introduces a whole nother idea, which is labor, which we haven't talked about, which is that I'm using my time and my skills and my resources in exchange for the things that I want, just like you did on Halloween night. But now it's indirectly in exchange for money that I then use for all the things that I want. And and thus we have an economy. Um, but at its core, an economy is just – this voluntary exchange taking place billions of times over and over and over again. And, and this is where intervention starts to look even more crazy because when you see three people who are exchanging candy with each other, you can think, Hey, I know better than them. And so I can step in and theoretically, if I'm more rational than they are and have more knowledge than they are, actually make things better for them than they could make for themselves. Now, of course, I think it's arrogant that that person thinks that they're more rational and more knowledgeable than those three people. But theoretically, that could be possible. I mean, it's something right, right. that parents will do with children is step in and say, I know better than you. I have more knowledge. And so I'm going to step in and I'm going to actually choose for you, which is something I yeah. do when I stop my kid from running into the street. Yeah, let me let me just highlight one thing before you move into the the bigger example. The the person intervening can't have access to some of the knowledge about the value scales that the subject they can. They truly cannot. Thank you they for clarifying cannot. that. They cannot. There are certain things they may have a lot of knowledge about things and they may they may know the subject better than themselves, right? With a parent and a child this is often the case. Um and they may know, you know, they may be looking at long it consequences an hour down the road that the child just simply isn't anticipating. Um, but there's, there are, is simply a, some information they cannot access because it is at the level of the subject's internal mind and motivations and wants and desires and things. And you're just, you, you're always, even as a parent with a small child, to some degree, you're playing with fire there because you, you, you just, there's going to be some things you don't know. Right. Mm -hmm. And often mm -hmm. your child can't communicate them <laughs> either. Yeah. So I've, I know I've tried to help and it seemed very clear that I was helping and Which ended is part up of why parenting worse. is such a bear. <laughs> it's, it's, it's very difficult. You try hard. So even if those three actors were adults who had divulged a ton of information about their desires, as you were saying, Dan, it's impossible to accurately predict their actual valuations. 
But even, even then, theoretically, it's possible that you could have enough outside information and more rationality than them that you could step in in that one specific situation. And the result would be that things would be better for all three of those people. And that at its core is the idea behind government is that we can step in because we have more rationality or more knowledge and we can make better decisions. And on a small scale, it's iffy, but on a large scale, it's not just that it's iffy or that it's morally incorrect, which it is, but, and we've talked about those reasons before and we'll talk about them again. You know, we're very clear about when we believe government intervention is justified, but purely from an economic standpoint, in terms of practicalities about how the world works, when you're talking about billions of voluntary exchanges that are taking place, often on a daily basis, the ability to correctly, I mean, at this point, we're talking guess or approximate the value scales of everyone involved in those exchanges just simply doesn't work. A great example of this is that when the government tries to intervene in the economy, they often look at how much money people are making. Um, and that's just, and they talk about that like it's everything. And that's, that itself is hard for them to track. But the fact of the matter is, is that one, money is just one small part of my life. I am not just the dollars that I make and the dollars that I spend. There's so much more going on in my life that you have to calculate. You know what I mean? And we've talked about this before about how there's so many things in our lives that aren't just money. And that's true, not just for what's happening in my life, but also for my desires. You know what I mean? When I'm desiring where I want to work, it's not just about the money that I'm making. It's about the the work that I'm doing, you know, like specifically what I'm doing, the effect that that work is having on other people. So like a cause that you're working towards, you know, people become doctors because they want to help people. And so if they're not helping people, they're not going to be as happy with their work, even if they're making more money. Um, the effect that it has on me physically, psychologically, you know, it could be, you know, physically difficult work. It could be backbreaking work. It could be psychologically demanding, um, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. You know, the coworkers that I have, the time that it takes up, the time of day, you know, the time it's taking away from my family, how far away it is from where I live. All of these are just a ton of factors that specifically revolve around my career, right? And so just trying to increase the money that I make is not going to take a look at all those other factors. And so the government could step in and say, hey, Brad, you're making this much. <clears throat> well, we want you to be making double that. And so now you're going to be doing this. It's like, boom, Brad is now twice as well off as he was before because money is all that they're seeing. But the fact of the matter is, is there's so much more in terms of my value scales that aren't just money. And so you could very easily put me in a job where I'm making twice as much and I'm much worse off. Make your life worse. And I know that because I've had the opportunity to make more than I'm making now. I mean, starting from when I went to college, I intentionally set myself on a path of making less money. Like you, I looked at the college degrees that were out there and there were so many that could make a ridiculous amount of money. And I didn't choose them for a myriad number of reasons. I mean, going from 
what I'm good at, to what I like to do, to et cetera, et cetera, the time it would take, all of these factors I, I looked at and chose less money in exchange for other non-money things that I valued. All of which factor into your, your well-being, all of which factor into your, your, your I guess, your, uh, your happiness, per yeah, se. Yeah, my happiness is a shorthand as I for see all it, of the value. Not things, as someone yes. outside sees it. And that's the thing is it's going to be different for everyone. There are a ton of people who get amazing satisfaction, I assume, I hope, from being doctors and nurses and people in the medical field. And they make good money as well. And that's just – and I just – I can't do it. I can't do it because right. – I mean, I almost faint at the sight of blood. I can't stand any of the icky body stuff. Um, I'm not – I hate the mathematical stuff. I hate I hate the biological aspect of it. There's so much that I don't <laughs> like. Before I even get to the cost of schooling and the time commitments, there's so many obstacles between me and that that it's just not going to happen. And that's okay because we all have different desires. And I'm so glad – that people desire it. I, I, I don't know right. if they're Somebody insane does. or what happened in their <laughs> brain, but I'm so happy for them. I'm so happy they're making all of that money. It's just not me. And I, and I mean that. It sounds sarcastic, but it's sincere because if everyone had the same value scales as me, the world would be a, a much darker place because <laughs> – because we learned that earlier this episode. No, Something about only, bashing. There's it. only a few specific things, in terms of the infinite number of de of desires and ends, that are my top things. And so there were so many things that would fall by the wayside because mm -hmm. I don't care about them, but someone right. else does, and that's what's so amazing. You know what I mean? There are people who put time and effort into posting factual useful information on wikipedia for free because they get value from it and i get value from it and we're all better off because they have those desires and that's fantastic and we need to have that myriad the myriad infinite range of desires to have such a full rich world that we do ranging from doctors to wikipedia entries to whatever I contribute. And and when we figure it out, we'll be happy to let you guys know. <laughs> candy bar rankings. It's for candy one bar thing. rankings. See, it's not nothing. I know that's what you were thinking, but <laughs> I knew it wasn't nothing. It just didn't have quite the ring of Wikipedia entries or doctors. So I just thought I'd doctors. leave it nebulous. <laughs> Your point is uh, there's there's just no way to generate concepts of value beyond this process and there's no way to navigate those beyond the con beyond consent how would you know that i valued something if i didn't consent to it how would you how could you possibly know that in fact if i'm refusing consent wouldn't that tell you that i don't value it wouldn't that tell you that this is a not good for me no and that is, is and there's no other the way to navigate exchange that. Is, it's so useful as as not an indicator, but an absolute proof 
that you value one thing more than another because you're willing to exchange it. Because if you're not yes. willing to exchange it, then maybe you really don't value that thing more, even if you say that you do. Because yes. lots of people will say that they value money more than all these other things, but they refuse to exchange those things for that money. Right, right. And it's also why uh, if you're asking people what they want, that's not a good list of what they actually want, right? Yeah, <laughs> well, you, 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 you actually say. need to look at what they do rather than what they say, because what they say can be, I mean, um, everyone has wish lists, right? Everyone has things that they would want in an ideal world, assuming no effort or cost is required, which is not the world we live in, right? Which is why they don't have it, which is <laughs> otherwise they would. Um, it, it's just interesting. There's, there's so much that could be said from here. We could go into terms of as we said consent there, I suggested some of the ideas there. And some there, there's a lot of philosophy, moral philosophy, as well as economics that can stem from this way of viewing the world and this, this perspective. Um, this idea of subjective value and these, these value, uh, scales by which we navigate, uh, a world of infinite complexity and choose means to accomplish ends of that we also choose, right? The ends that we want. Um, it's just a, it, it's a very human world. It's human action. And this is the basis of Austrian economics. Mm -hmm. From here, you can get to all other economic ideas. And you go, well, where's the, <laughs> well, to, to make one slight comparison here as we wrap up to other, <laughs> to other philosophies, where is the math equation? I don't know. How do you generate a math equation out of human action? Yeah. And you don't need a, a, a math equation to understand human action because using these principles, I can go out and look at what's going on in the economy mm -hmm. and make sense of it. Not perfectly, but I can come up with theories. I can use logic to weigh those theories and come up with useful ways of viewing the world when – economists waste time making mathematical formulas that may or may not have bearing on reality. Yes, where where the mathematical formulas are useful is when you are trying to say, okay, so what is happening in the world? And then you can try and you need you need some statistical modeling and data and things like that. And then you can see how that stacks up against the theory and things. But yeah, yeah we're not saying that we're <laughs> against data. Absolutely. No, no, but but uh but you aren't going to be able to create a mathematical model that's predictive. Because how could you predict the outcome of people acting in the world in this manner, right? You, you can't, this is the physics envy we talked about last episode. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You are not going to be able to model this in a way that allows you to say, this is how much inflation is going to go up, or this is how much this is going to cost, or yeah. this is how many of these are going to be sold, right? These are things that are impossible actually to predict. And it's impossible because hopefully you can see why having built up how action, uh, how people act with purpose to achieve ends and in a very complicated world. And they're always acting at the margin. They're always acting at the next item and it shifts even after they have one, right? You, you can't even, you can't even say, well, shoes are worth this much to this person. Even if you knew that absolutely, you wouldn't know what they're worth after they have one pair of shoes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. To some people, they're still worth a lot. They collect shoes, right? <laughs> to some people, it's one pair is good. And they'll patch mm -hmm. it over the course of their life or whatever. It's, it's just a people are so, so interesting and of such infinite variety and complexity that it's a hopefully 
this perspective, it, it, the kind of modeling that we're used to uh, seems a little bit more silly. Okay, so here we are. We've talked about human action, which is purposeful action that individual humans use, means that are limited to achieve ends, which therefore, by definition, limits their ends. Because their ends have to be limited, and there are so many ends out there, every individual has value scales that helps them that allows them to prioritize what they want most. Those value scales are subjective, they're individual, and they're fluid based off of their desires at any given moment, and they don't become concrete until they actually act. And that's where we get into marginal utility, is the, the valuation of the next thing on their list versus something else. This, of course, leads people to engage in voluntary exchange exchanging what they have for what they want more than what they have. And that includes not only exchanging goods, but exchanging their labor and their talents for goods or for money they can use to get goods. And all of that is what underlies the economy in every given moment. Is it simply the economy is simply exchange taking place over and over and over again as people work to better themselves. That's the base. And there are a few things that we need to cover before we want to take that and apply that to inflation and greedflation and what's going on right now. Um, one of those core things we want to talk about is production. Um, production is, is not just us exchanging labor for goods, but us actually exchanging labor for more means that allows us to get what we want. And that's something we haven't talked about yet. And that results in what is called capital. And we haven't talked about any of that. And we need to talk about time preference, which affects when we want things, which affects things like interest rates and affects things like affects things like investment and savings. And all of that actually affects affects, excuse me, inflation. And so those are a few things we want to cover. Um, there may be a few more. Um, we'll probably want to cover the supply of money again or not. We've talked about it before, but those few more concepts that are really pivotal to building these base elements and applying them to the inflation crisis that we're having today. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pause one more time. Um, if, if this is going on too much and we're talking too much about Austrian economics, feel free to shoot us a message. Um, but otherwise, we're going to keep plugging ahead because we think this is actually useful to what's being talked about today. And we want to take the time to do it right. And so we're going to talk about those few more concepts and then actually apply them to the greedflation that's taking place. And, and that will all be in the next episode. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. And thank you all for listening. And actually, it won't be next week, guys. Uh, Dan is actually going to be out of town. So you may have to wait two weeks. But we will be back. Next episode, we'll continue discussing this. Sit tight. It's a coming. Thanks for your patience, and we'll see you in two weeks. Have a good one, guys. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com, or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com, where you can support us via Patreon. 
Thanks and have a wonderful day.